You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're back for more fun in Judges, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Judges. I hope so. That's why I've got notes on. Okay, well, <laughs> we just, as when we last left, uh, God had just consumed a very large meal. A huge meal. Although I think, I think he kind of, I don't want to say, I don't want to say cheated. I don't want to accuse him of that, but he didn't actually eat it. He just burned it. Right. So. Yeah. Well, does God eat? I, mean, well, I guess we. He did, did with Abraham. Yes, this is true. So this is true. And Jesus says he's not going to partake of the fruit of the vine until he returns. So implying that he did and will again. So yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So God eats, but that's a really weird thought. Well, okay. <laughs> let's, let's just imagine you design the universe. Okay. With no needs. Okay. Like you have no needs. The universe has needs, but you don't, but you get to design this stuff. And, but you can do whatever you want. You might as well eat. It's one of the more fun things we get to do as human beings. Right. (laughs) I mean, mean, we can't, I mean, I don't think there's anything that says God can't eat. And I'm sure he probably enjoys what he eats. I think he likes chicken because everything tastes like chicken. Well, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) The randomness that is us. So... (laughs) Sorry for that little sidetrack. Uh, I don't know what was happening there, but yeah. So back to Gideon. We, we yeah. The, I mean, I just, you'd give all these other things the ability to eat, but not do it yourself. That, that to me, that, I'm sorry. Right. No, I, no. I, and just I can't do let this go. God enjoys certain things. And, you know, I think relationally, uh, we do see that in the Bible, that he, he enjoys having a relationship, which it's kind of interesting, a little trivia here. Eating is one of the few biological needs that we do in community. Right. right. And so we, we actually... Like on purpose. On purpose. Right. <laughs> exactly. And we have to breathe. Yes. Yes. But as far as like something we choose to do and include others in, in meeting this biological need, we, we it's not just something we do like with a partner or our close family. It's very much something that we can enjoy with a stranger. Yeah. This is how a stranger might become a friend. And it's through this shared need that we have. And so I can see God kind of partaking in that, not because he needs to, but because he wants to be a part of that community. Yeah, And maybe that's the reason why when we talk about communion, that's so important that it is eating and drinking. Yeah, and so I, I can see that. Just randomness, because we didn't plan on going yeah. down this little rabbit trail. But Hey, let's start the show. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so... When we last left Gideon. When we last left Gideon, so he's had this encounter with God. Uh, God and Gideon have had this, this great conversation where Gideon is the teenager and God's being dad. And like I said, I love that. Um, and God embodied has left the scene, but Gideon's still going to talk to God. We're going to have God's voice uh, leading him. And God has consumed the, like Nathan said, this huge meal, mm-hmm. uh, a, a goat and 25 pounds wor- of flour worth of bread. Wh- however many loaves that would 
Yeah. yeah. It's it, not keto friendly. N- not at all. And so, um, which tells you that keto's of the devil. But anyway. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and since I'm doing keto, I, I can attest to this. So <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that might be a little too much insight, but let's go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, everybody, you know, it's kind of like CrossFit. If you do it, you've got to talk about it. So anyway, um, so Gideon, now he, he built this altar, which is, you know, this is pretty standard Old Testament event. If God shows up, you, you build an altar, you build a stone memorial of some sort to commemorate the fact that God has appeared at this place. But this also creates a problem because we have two altars in this area and you cannot have two altars in the same area. Um, so one of them has to go. And this is when God commands Gideon to destroy the altar of Baal. Now, this command is unique to Gideon because none of the other judges are commanded to destroy the places of worship of the other gods. And it's interesting that this is his first, uh, you know, his first divine commission. It it really is. It's not to build the, uh, it's not to build the army. It's not to assemble the troops. Unlike everybody we've seen before, Mm -hmm. it is to destroy this place of worship for Baal. Now, Gideon's name actually means hacker. And so he's going to hack down the hmm. sheriff hole. And Didn't realize that. Yeah. And that's because we don't think about his name. We, we go with Mighty Man of Valor. And that's what most people want to associate with him. Yeah. No, I, and I, I, do, I do like that even still here you have him uh, still being afraid. And mm-hmm. he says, I'm, I'm too scared for my family. So I'm going to do it. But later. Yeah. Like at, at night when no one can see me. Let's let's do that. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's not, you know, God's just said he's going to be with him. And we we know that Gideon knows the story of the Exodus. We know that he he's heard about the miracles that happened coming out of Egypt because he's referenced them in, in his own speech to God. So Gideon has some knowledge of what it means for God to be with someone, but he's still a little hesitant. Now, what I do think is very interesting is that we have this, um, this Agadah in, in the rabbinic writings, and it talks about Abraham going and destroying the idols of the father. And that story that is told about Abraham, which, you know, not part of the Bible, this is, mm-hmm. this yes, is folklore. Yeah. yeah. This story draws directly from Gideon's actions here. Okay. So the, the fact that the rabbis picked up Gideon's story and imposed it in, in Abraham's life kind of tells you a little bit about what they think of Abraham because they, they were trying to answer the question, why did God choose Abraham? Right. And God didn't call Abraham until he's like 75 years old. Right. And so they're trying to fill in some of the blanks. And what happened before God sent him on this quest? Why was Abraham um, worthy of being, being called by God? And the reason, part of the reason why they choose this story of Gideon is because when you look at the stories of Abraham and Gideon together, you begin Abraham's story. He, he set out on a journey with his father. Mm-hmm. The, Gideon's story is getting ready to be all about Gideon and his father. Angels come to visit Gideon. They come to visit Abraham. Um, Abraham's at the Oaks of Memre. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abraham, yeah, Abraham's at the Oaks of Mamre. Gideon's at the Oaks of uh, Ophrah. He prepares a meal for Abraham and Gideon, both prepare meals for God that consist, consist of bread and meat. Mm-hmm. Try to get my words here. 
Abraham argues with God. Gideon argues with God. Um, the argument with Abraham results in the destruction of Sodom. The argument with Gideon results in the destruction of this um, of this place of worship for Baal. Sodom, obviously, we know about the sexual immorality that happened there. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about a place of worship for Baal, we're talking a place of sexual religious rites occurring. Right. So you have these very close ties between the lives of both men. So it kind of makes sense that they would actually choose a story from Gideon's life to, to kind of fill in those blanks. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that's cool. Now, one, one of the things that I, I like about this is just how, how much this, this little scene, there's, there's so much personality in this mm-hmm. because uh, they find out who it is. They find out it was Gideon who broke it down, and the mm-hmm. men of the town are, are are mad. The Israelite men are upset yes, by this. Yes, and they come to, they ask around, and they find out oh it was Gideon, mm-hmm. the son of Joash, and so they go to Joash and they're like, "Give us your son." Right. And Joash, you know, like you said, he was he was a pagan priest at this mm-hmm. point. He kind of does a one eighty. He does, and, and we're going to get into that. And, but you but, skip some stuff. But, but but no, I mean, just I'm just talking about like just here's what I get from this reading of this text is is there's so much personality in it because one you have Joash doing this 180, but you also have him going. Well, if Bale's so great, like like it's like okay, mm-hmm. he's like, what's funny is he's like, all right, so I was immediately you have this where he's like, well, if Bale's so great. He can take care of himself. Right. He's going to say, you know, we we were worshiping him, but I'm not going to fight right. for for him. Yeah. And I guess you know, we'll do the other rituals, but we're not going to fight for him. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it, to me, that's funny. And then when they change Gideon's name, mm-hmm. that and I know well, you probably have something on that. But when <laughs> Gideon's name is changed, it's it's just his name is like making fun of this other God. Yeah. And so I think that's brilliant, but I'm sorry, go, no, go on with well, what you were going to talk about. But no. I'm just saying like, if you look at just the basic reading, there's just so much going on in that little bit of space. This, this is what I love about the whole Gideon story. It is so, there's so much humanity in it, even more so than I think we see in a lot of other biblical books uh, and stories about the biblical characters you you just really see him as a person and when they when the rabbis did take this story and they imposed it back on abraham we have this kind of interesting story sorry interesting encounter with his dad mm-hmm. where you know his dad cuz okay uh, for those of you who don't know the story abraham is supposed to have gone in and destroyed these idols that his father had and he puts a stick in the hand of the biggest idol and his dad goes, you know, who did this? And Abraham's like, well, it was obviously the biggest idol. And his dad's like, it's just a chunk of wood. It couldn't do this. It was powerless to do this. Mm-hmm. So uh, it couldn't be that. And Abraham's like, then why are you worshiping him? Sure. So you still have this idea of gods being able to defend themselves. If, and if they can't defend themselves, then they aren't worthy of, of being worshipped. And the, the writers just present the, the same idea in, in a different way. But when Gideon goes to do this, he takes two bulls and and he tears down the altars and he cuts down an Asherah pole. He builds a new altar and he uses the Asherah pole to build the fire Mm -hmm. and he sacrifices the second bull. So we've got a lot of elements 
on the board here mm-hmm. that we're we're playing with. Now, yeah. And I'm going to use your toys to do it. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what's going on. Now, the first bull that, that Gideon takes, this is a draft animal. It's identified as an ox. Mm-hmm. And now when you have a draft animal and they're being used to work and, you know, they've got a yoke on their shoulders, they've got poles rubbing mm-hmm. against them, they're blemished. You, sure. you can't use them for a sacrifice. And... When you can't use something for a sacrifice, you know, when you're going to sacrifice something to God, it can't be blemished. That's what right. I'm trying to say. And so this is the reason why he has to take two. And he, the bull he takes, the, the second one is seven years old. It's not a draft animal. And the fact that it's seven years old and it hasn't been eaten yet, this is significant. Because, I mean, remember, they're in a time of, of starvation. Right. Food is... Food is something of a premium right now. So this tells you that this animal is, um, he's probably used for breeding purposes. He's probably uh, a a well-blooded animal, uh, a high-quality animal. And, but there's also, he was probably used in the uh, worship of Baal. Okay. And so he, um, how do I have the notes messed up? I don't even want to know, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. If we have to explain that thought to you, you aren't old enough. So uh, the uh, before we talk a little bit more about that, because I do have some passages, I want to stop and look at the Asherah poll, because the Asherah poll, we've talked about Asarte before, and we talked mm-hmm. about Anah. Asherah is a distinct deity. Okay. Uh, she is the wife of El, not Baal, but El. Right. And El is uh, the father of Baal. And she's actually considered to be the mother of all 70 of the Ugaritic gods and goddesses. Uh, she's often said to be the nurse of kings and pharaohs. And she was um, had a lot of the same qualities as Asarte and Anoth. Mm-hmm. So we have kind of some overlap in different places because these gods did tend to be very intermixed and uh, they, they would merge and, and divide at strange times. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not always a straight linear shot to, to kind of follow their development. Right. So now what we do know about her is that she is closely as- associated with Tyre and Sidon. Okay. And what do we need to know about uh, Tyre and Sidon? Well, Ezekiel 28, that's when we start talking about Satan. And mm-hmm. uh, we know that the Israelites were worshiping the goddess of the Sidians. That's in 1 Kings 11.5. Okay. So she keeps showing back up uh, throughout the Bible. And I think in a previous episode, I, knew, I, I said exactly how many times I didn't put it in here. She's yeah, mentioned, and, and, it, and even after Judges, I mean, we still see her into uh, Elijah mm-hmm. and Elisha yes, you know, and confronting she, her in, we, in lots of places. We see her show up so much in the Bible that there's actually, and I'm not agreeing with this, and I'm not promoting this idea, that people have said that possibly her, the worship of Asherah was um, okay because she was God's, Yahweh's spouse. Right. Uh, it, it, that, that is an idea that existed, but apparently the, the, the evidence for that is, is so slim that they're thinking it was just like a, sm- just such a, a right. small uh, 
These were people in Sect rebellion. Of Israelites. Yeah. yeah, they were people in rebellion against what the Torah has said. So yes, even though people did it, may have done it, uh, it may have been you know just a handful. It, and it really doesn't matter how many it was, because the point is it wasn't supposed to be done. Right. And God had clearly said it was not supposed to be done. Yeah, I think you uh, might have made mention of his wife. You know, most, most most people I know are married. They at some point will mention their wives. Right. You know. You, you, and if they don't, they're scum and you need to walk away. So, you know, <laughs> speaking as a woman. So um, now and we, we know that she was very popular. She shows up in the Amarna letters. Um, the Amorite king... Abdu Ashirta, uh, his name literally translates to slave of Asherah. Okay. So uh, very popular at the time of Elijah um, under Ahab and Jezebel. She actually, um, Jezebel's from Sidon. Right. So it makes sense that this is part of her, um, her worship. And Ezekiel addresses the problem of Asherah worship at the time of exile over and over again. And Remember, we've talked about Judges probably was written around the time of Manasseh, king of Judah, and he's the whole reason we have an exile. Right. And so, um, matter of fact, 2 Kings 24.3 says, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he'd done. So if we back up to 2 Kings 21, verses 1 through 9, I'm not going to read all of those verses. It tells us what he did. He rebuilt the high places of Baal. Mm -hmm. He made a share of holes. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven. He burned his sons as offerings, and he dealt with mediums and necromancers. So this was not something he did by accident. No. Is what you're trying to say. Yeah, he, he did. This was direct defiance. And uh, verse 7 of that, uh, this is 2 Kings 21, verse 7 says, And he carried the image of Asherah that he had made. He made. Mm-hmm. He sat in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said to David and Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of Israel, I will put my name forever. So he's putting the Asherah pole in the temple. Hmm. And this is, this is what leads to exile. And this is the reason why Judges is considered to be a, a prophetic book to that age, saying sure. this is what God did before when you messed up this bad. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to act like this, then you don't have a king. And right. we're going to take we're going to take a king out of the equation completely. And you're going to be oppressed by outsiders, just like you were during the days of the judges. Yeah. So we need to um, remember that. Now the people of, of judges, they already had their, their prophetic word. They, mm -hmm. they already knew in Deuteronomy 16, 21 and 22, God tells them, don't plant an pole. Don't do it. Right. And um, Deuteronomy 17, one through seven, he talks about um, the, the kind of sacrifices you should bring, and uh, there should be no worshiping of other gods, the sun, moon, or host of heaven. And if you hear of anyone doing this, you should investigate, mm -hmm. attain two witnesses that can confirm, and then purge the evil from your midst. Right. So God, you know, there, there's no mercy for someone who violates his word and commands in, on these things. Right. Well, and, and especially when you figure, when you look at the, the rituals of, of worship, like I said, it, it's not an accidental thing. You didn't like, oh, I accidentally walked into a meeting of people and yeah. Now, it, it now all of a sudden I'm, I'm worshiping Baal. Yeah. Now there, there's. And you know, and I, I think, and I, cause I, I do have people sometimes talk about, oh, well, like 
I just got distracted and got so focused and started worshiping myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I realize, you know, we can get distracted and we can forget to spend every moment thinking about God. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're accidentally worshiping ourselves. Right. And so, yeah. And but, yeah. The, and when you consider this in the divine council worldview, then it becomes an act of war. Mm-hmm. The very act of just changing your allegiance and who you're worshiping. This isn't just, oh, I think I'm going to be a Methodist this week and a Presbyterian next week. This is, you know, this is huge. This is defiance. Yeah. And, and it's deliberate defiance. So verse 26, um, and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of the stronghold there. And so God is calling this, this, um, this place of worship, this high place, a stronghold. Mm-hmm. And this gets military connotations. So we're back to that war idea. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, in Psalms 31, it, it means fortress is how the, it's typically uh, translated. That's Psalms 31, 3. Uh, in Psalms 52, 7, refuge is another way. We have it in Daniel as fortress. We have it in Isaiah as strongholds. But the whole idea, it, it's military. It, it's used in wartime. Yeah. So if God sends someone to destroy the strongholds of his enemies, they're not going to stand and you know, they're going to be destroyed. This is because God's with Gideon. So right. now because the rabbis could talk about them some, they, they read this story and they, they're like, there's problems there. There's major problems with this whole account. Uh, and they list eight problems. And that's a surprisingly small number. It is really for rabbinic discussion. Because, <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> yeah, and I do, I encourage people, if you've never read anything out of the Talmud, just find something online, read a section of it, just uh, so if you're, you can. If you're near a university, go to their library. Yeah. Um, you'll find, like, we're in, o, we're in Oklahoma, and even in the middle of Oklahoma, where there's not a large Jewish population, um, their Judaic studies section is I so drool. cool. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they've, they've got, what, three different copies of the, of the Talmud? I think one of them needs to come live at my house, but yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and they're, yeah, they're very pretty. <laughs> yeah, it, but just to get that flavor and the feel for how they interact, and it actually, it shed some light on why Jesus talked to the disciples the way he did sometimes and how normal that kind of was. But these, okay, so back to Gideon, and the eight problems that they list is one, he he didn't slaughter at the temple courtyards. Well, there was no temple. That's a problem. Two, sacrifices were, it was made at night. So that's. Yeah, you don't do them. You don't do them at night. Okay. No. Gideon isn't a priest. Okay. He did not use sacred vessels. Okay. He used the vessels of Asherah. Okay. He used the Asherah pole to build his fire. Mm-hmm. He set up a private altar. And the animal he used, they said, had been worshipped as an idol. Okay. So this is one of the things that the Talmud is really good is space-time dilation, kind of uh, warping of the timeline. The timeline's not necessarily something you use. It's something you overcome. Okay. <laughs> and so th- this is another reason. Because, well, I mean, there was stuff for the tabernacle, but where's that all packed up? That's at Shiloh. Uh, okay. So, so not in the right place. Mm-mm. So there's nine. Yeah. Well, I guess, it, you know, of course, the temple, I don't know. 
Of course they. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was like, I don't know. Well, uh, just there's a lot of stuff there. Go ahead. No, and that's it because there is no temple. And in Deuteronomy 12, we know that there's a provision made that once you're in the land of Canaan, you don't have to sacrifice animals at the temple anymore. You can actually sacrifice in a field. Now, there's, there's a procedure, and I'm not going to go into that, okay. but it tells you how to do it. Um, private altars were still allowed because there wasn't a temple yet. Right. There wasn't the altar. Precisely. Gideon's not a priest, but neither is Samuel. And Samuel offers sacrifices to God in Kings. Mm-hmm. Or in the book of Samuel, sorry, not Kings. Um, the, it seems like the restriction for priests only doing sacrifices really doesn't come into play until we do get that temple. Right. So, and, and the, the, the sacred um, vessels until the temple, once again, I mean, you, you don't really have the sacred, you've got some of the sacred vessels in the tabernacle, but it's no, nowhere nearly established or elaborate right. as it becomes with the temple. Um, the Talmudic discussion, what we have to remember with them, they aren't about trying to um, record what was happening or replay what was happening in the text so much as to help the people of their own particular time follow Torah. Right. So they wanted to bring out the problems with what Gideon was doing to remind people in their day, don't do these things. Okay. Don't don't make these mistakes. So they're willing to kind of sacrifice Gideon's image and reputation a little bit if it's going to strengthen their own people's ability to follow Torah. Okay. And they they didn't see it so much as a problem because in their mind the Torah is eternal. Mm-hmm. So Adam even had the the Torah. Right. And so their solution for this is that Gideon was operating under a special dispensation of grace, if you will, that God made a provision for him. That was particular to a time of war when he was unable to access everything that would have been normal for someone during the temple, the times of the temple. Well, and it goes back to if it's for saving lives, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you can suspend as much of it as you need to. And God was trying to save his people from what was from the oppression. So, And, and this is what's going on here. Now, I, what I did find interesting is that that second bull when they, they recognized that as being worshipped as an idol, mm-hmm. uh, they actually brought in something into the discussion. It's Leviticus chapter 1, verse 2. Um, God says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd and from the, or from the flock. And, and they said that the reason why God was to commanding them to go to their own herds and their own flocks, not 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 the marketplace, not the, the local stockyard, go to your own herd and flock, get the creature that you were going to sacrifice and bring it back because this is going to ensure that the animal had never been worshipped as a god, right? that it had never been dedicated to be sacrificed for a god, it hadn't been used in bestiality, it had never been used as payment for a prostitute, and then they went to this full discussion <laughs> of what constitutes a prostitute, which was kind of interesting. Uh, and that it had never been given to a woman by her husband so that he could have sex with her while she was menstruating. And so this is... So many details. Right? But that's what makes it fascinating because when they pulled this, this verse in and they began discussing um, why this was a problem that Gideon offered this bull, it, at first it kind of seemed almost superfluous to, to the, the text. And I'm right. kind of like going... Yeah. 
okay, he he offered a, a bull, but the uh, the I didn't see it, I didn't see it as a problem. Okay. But I'm not viewing this as a Jewish person would have either during the the rabbinic ages or even in, as someone in Gideon's time. Yeah. And so they they claimed that that seven years where it was set aside was because it was worshipped as a god. And um, they're suggesting that the only reason why the, the text includes that number seven was to, to give you that information, that if you would mm-hmm. have been alive during that time, you would have gotten that. Okay. And because there doesn't really seem to be a good reason to include that little bit of information, because there's really not any kind of time or age limit set on the animals for sacrifice in the Bible. Sometimes they'll say bring a young animal, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really give a specific number. Now, I couldn't find any external um, evidence for that, but I do think it, I, I think they were onto something. Because if you take the story in totality and you look at all the little details that were given about Gideon tearing down this place, we're talking about a full reversal. Yeah. Everything in this account is a complete 180 from where it began, uh, Baal's altars pulled down. God's altar is raised up. Mm-hmm. Asherah was consumed by fire. God's glorified in her being consumed by fire. The bull owned by the owner of the high place mm-hmm. now becomes um, used to worship the one true God. So yeah, well, it's it's kind of like I said earlier. You know, it's like we're gonna we're gonna take over this and we're gonna use your toys to do it. Precisely. Like yes. You're just way more concise. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, really, it is. I mean, it, it's just God saying, you know, it's it's God saying, not only am I going to do this, but the stuff you meant for evil, I'm going to use for good. It, well, and reversal is such a huge theme throughout the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that when God commands Gideon to do this, that, I mean, this isn't just winning. I mean, this is salt in the wound kind of winning. Oh yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Insult to injury. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know parading them, parading his enemies. That uh, we read that passage a few weeks ago, and I can't remember it now. Uh, but he's putting them to open shame. Oh yeah, yeah. And oh, there was a great NT Wright uh, video. Let's see if we can link to it if I can find it, where he was talking about, um, you know, in, you know, in ancient times, you would pre, you would parade the people that you had captured before mm-hmm. uh, before your people. You mm-hmm. go off to war and you come back with this. And this is what parades, this is how parades right. started. Is I it, thought they were about floats and bubbles oh, and man. tossing candy to crowds. I, I, every time I think, I think of, I always think of Drop Dead Gorgeous when I think of modern <laughs> parades and uh, the flaming g- swan <laughs> float. Um, anyway, that's, but no, parades, they, you know, they began as you would, the king and his warriors would go off to another village. They would capture the people and the king. They would parade everyone through town and then kill the king in front of everyone. Speaking as, of which, as a, as, <laughs> do you have something on that? We're we're going to go there actually. It, it, but no, it was no. N.T. Wright was talking about this. How Jesus and the cross that that was the enemy thinking. Right, they were parading him. Mm-hmm. In front of his people and killing him. Yes. Yes. But really what Jesus was doing was conquering them. And he, and he, and 
and I, and I don't remember he said this exactly or if this was just a thought that occurred to me, but when you think about it, who, who all had to be there during that time? I mean, you imagine all the, all the forces that were thinking yeah. they were winning over God at this point. Jesus is leading them through their own procession right up to and including death itself. Wow. Wow. And, <laughs> and I mean, I mean, think about it. That's, that's just chilling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, when you think of all these well, forces, that, Jesus so. is, yeah, leading them through town unbeknownst to themselves and they're slaying him. But at the end, he he's, them. he's actually in that process. They're basically, they're offing themselves. I mean, it's brilliant. And and it's just, you think about it, it just boggles the mind. I mean, so yeah, Uh, I'll see if I can find that video. It was amazing. So uh, go ahead. We need to put that. Yeah, because that's good information to have. And again, it's bringing, excuse me, it's bringing the divine counsel worldview back into the Bible and seeing that supernatural aspect of this, where it's not just a story about a man. Mm -hmm. And so, and even... All of this is not just a story about a man. So, okay, we're in verse 27, and we've got some, some information, a lot of information packed in this verse. Uh, Gideon takes 10 servants. So if he takes 10 of his servants, that tells you by the wording he had more. His father owned the land where Baal was being worshipped. His father is the one who owns the oak tree. His father had the two bulls. His father was able to stop the men from killing him. Mm-hmm. And so all of this points to a few things about his family. Number one, they're rich. Right. According to this society and time, they, they are absolutely rich. By their standard. And, and here's mm-hmm. something else it tells you about them. I mean, even though, even though you have him being a priest, mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, being a priest for Baal, um, you still have uh, uh, the, the decency to take care of the servants Mm -hmm. because by rights, I mean, if food's scarce, he could have just released them and said, you're on your own. Right. But he's still, you know, he's still taking care of them enough that they're willing to stay and not try to run away and willing to, to follow Gideon through this. So that tells you something also about the, just, there's that much decency to take care of, of the obligations of the servants. Yeah, because, I mean, and, and for them to join Gideon in this act was really putting their own heads on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. It, it could have endangered them beyond just a little inconvenience. Right. And the uh, it, it tells you that, but it also tells you that his, his family is very influential. And, I mean, anybody who can stop a mob with a single proclamation that's somebody who's got some significant power. Mm-hmm. And so that, that tells you about Gideon standing, uh, his family standing in the community. And it's going to play into what happens later on in, in his story. So as so we move in to the next uh, passage, Gideon gets found out because the people begin to demand, you know, where did this go? You know, what, what happened? Who destroyed this? Yeah. I mean, cause it was an altar for worship. Surely it was not just, I mean, it took time to build. It took resources. It took time to build. Um, this was the gathering place. I yeah. mean, this is where they got together to drink, have mm-hmm. sex. I mean, you hang out with your buddies. All of these things happened. And people, when you take that from a community, people 
go into a tizzy. And yeah. it's really interesting because uh, when I was reading this, uh, this spring in Oklahoma, we had a ton of flooding and there is this bar that's uh, below the dam. And so it's called the dam bar. Right. And so it got just washed away. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing how that place, and I think, you know, a lot of Christians would consider that a sinful place of den of iniquity, whatever. But the community, the the people who showed up to help clean up the site, mm-hmm. to rebuild. And in just a matter of a few months, they've built something that's like four times the size that it was before. And it's looking pretty impressive from the outside, actually. I may have <laughs> to go check there. it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but... Cleaner kitchen. Right? And so, it, but that's what community does. Uh, and they rally around these places. It's not just a place of, of worship for these people. It's not like they went, like, we go to church. You go take your place in a pew, and then you do whatever you're going to do, shuffle and then you in, leave. Yeah, th- this really was central to their entire lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're absolutely um, upset. But it also this strengthens our tie back to the story of Abraham. Because when the, the angels go into Sodom, they demand, you know, give us these men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Lot's, you know... Lot makes this feeble attempt to to um, dissuade them. That's right. the word I'm looking for. And so the fact that Joash is able to actually just give this word, it's, it's huge. And you, you kind of wonder, you know, as the head of the household, how responsible is he for Gideon? I mean, there is a lot of responsibility as the father automatically, but how old is Gideon? Right. Because if he's able to to stand against them, but they weren't coming for him, they were coming for his son. So that kind of gives you some idea that Gideon's enough of a man that he was seen as responsible for mm-hmm. his own actions, but not so much that daddy doesn't step in. Right. So, um, and it, it is kind of an interesting twist too that these idolaters are calling for Gideon to be killed when the Torah demands that it's the idolaters who be killed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you have this um, perversion of the law that's going on there. So like you brought up earlier, Joash, he, he says, you know, basically if Baal can't defend himself, then we just need to step off. Well, and what's the freight? What's that freight? Who is it? Uh, you see, there's a, when you said one of your friends, uh, is the the truth will stand when the when the world's on fire kind of yeah, thing. That's Mammy. Mammy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, she, it, well, it, I mean, it, it's kind of that same parallel. Mm-hmm. It's if if what if if we're supposed to worship Baal, if Baal's mm-hmm. the true god, he doesn't need us. And uh, who who was it? Spurgeon that uh, Luke quoted on it during the interview with defending the Bible is like defending a lion. You you simply let it out of the cage and right. it defends itself. You know, it's 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 all kind of playing on that same kind of theme that mm-hmm. in the end we cannot escape what's true. Right. And so and and you see that also, you know, as I was listening to uh I think it was, I was listening to Leighton Flowers mm-hmm. and he was talking about, you know, when when you're when you realize your position is becoming indefensible, that's when you get mad. Right. And so if you're if you aren't mad about your <laughs> if you don't get mad and defensive about your position, then it's more likely that it's true. 
And right. so he's that's kind of what I see here with him going, Hey, if 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 Bale's in charge, tell him to take care of my son. Well, and this is kind of, you know, this is kind of echoed with Elijah at Carmel with the the prophets of Baal. It's can can Baal actually show up? Can he actually follow through? My mm-hmm. God can. Yeah. Uh, and so we see that there, but we also see it. I thought the other interesting place was Acts 5, 33 through 42. And this is whenever the apostles are before um, the Jews and they're, they, they go before Gamaliel and say, mm-hmm. you know, hey, this is a problem. And, and he tells the people, says, you know, he's basically he cites two other uh, uprisings within Judaism where there was uh, a claim of the Messiah mm-hmm. being there. And he says, you know, nothing happened with them. But if it is from God, then we aren't going to be able to stop it. Sure. And you don't want to be opposing God. So he, again, good rabbi, he goes back to this Old Testament passage and says, here's the principle, and this is how we apply it. So mm-hmm. even though he doesn't directly cite it, he uses the same logic. Mm-hmm. And he would have known the story. He probably would have known the story about Abraham and the idols. He, he was pulling off of this rabbinic wisdom that he had. Mm-hmm. And he was considered, you know, he was a pretty smart dude. He was actually the head of the Sanhedrin at sure. one point. So, uh, and, you know, and then of course we see what Paul produced and Paul being his student. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, we, should, we should maybe do some study on that at some point. I, I would like to, to dig into that a little bit. It's, it's interesting because it gives you that connection back to Judaism and it gives you that connection back to, to a historical uh, construct. Matter of fact, he was so highly... Um, thought of in the rabbinic circles that I've actually got this quote here, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, uh, which if you do any rabbinic study, you're going to learn gonna his, his name. name. Yep. yep. He says when uh, Gamaliel died, he, uh, when he died, the honor of the Torah ceased and the uh, purity and piety became extinct. Hmm. So that, that's how highly revered this man was. Wow. So I, and that's, that's huge. That's a high compliment. <laughs> Precisely, especially coming from uh, Yochanan ben Sakai. So, right. uh, but you know, th- yeah, this is very much his father's making a theological statement. He's saying any god who needs protection isn't a god worth worshiping. Worth worshiping, right? And now, going back to what you were saying about that parade, uh, this is just one tie-in with what you were saying there. Consider the cross in the light of that. You know, the fact that Jesus did not need human protection. Right. That's, that tells you all you need to know about his divinity. Mm. And I, I hadn't considered that. I mean, well, I kind of have, but I it's, hadn't put it in those exact words. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it all, this whole story does tie in because when you go to John, uh, John 2, 18 through 21, and the Jews say, you know, what sign do you show us to, um, for doing these things? And Jesus says, you know, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And they, mm-hmm. and he was talking about his body. And so I'm you know, paraphrasing here greatly, but um, therefore he was raised from the dead and his disciples remembered what he had said. So the, the resurrection was the sign. Not only what, could he not be destroyed by the hands of man, but he was able to overcome yeah. those who, who came against him. Uh, you know, First Corinthians 15, Paul discusses the significance of the resurrection. And I'm bringing this up because 
so often as Christians, modern Christians, we want to talk about the resurrection metaphorically. Mm-hmm. We want to, oh, well, you know, Jesus didn't really go through that. That was just to teach us some kind of spiritual lesson. Mm-hmm. If you do not affirm the bodily, real, factual resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything else about our faith is meaningless. Right. Right. And so. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, I know. I know he's not real popular with the Christians anymore, but uh, Rob Bell did have a great quote on that. When when he, somebody asked him about whether or not he believed in the resurrection, and this is, I mean, and you can take this in two different directions. Now, I I think he he said it in a way that kind of gets him off the hook for believing in the physical resurrection. Mm-hmm. But he he said, uh, was it? Something happened 2,000 years ago right, in Israel that changed the course of human history. Mm-hmm. And, and when I think of that, I'm thinking, the, it must have been the power of God, right? Right. Um, because, again, you know, there's, there's just, there's lots of evidence, and we could get into the evidence for the resurrection. I think that might actually be a kind of a fun mm-hmm. episode to do at some point. Um, but it, it really is, I mean, like I said, if, if you don't believe in the physical resurrection, Paul, Paul said, you know, to, to quote Paul, basically our faith is useless. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, Ephesians one, and, and I'm just going to read this whole thing because it is so powerful and especially in the light of this and, and to see that this idea was so much a part of Judaism. It's mm-hmm. part of the Old Testament ideology about the power of God. So Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believes according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in his age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who, who filled in all in all. So I, the, this is Jesus' death and resurrection, as you were saying, so much with the parade illustration, this is an act of war. Mm-hmm. And, and not only is it an act of war, it's the winning act of war. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea that Jews had no idea who Jesus was or had no way of comprehending who, who he was at that time, the Old Testament shows you that God had been setting this up from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, and, 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 back to, and it also it, it echoes that reversal theme, too, mm-hmm. because you didn't get put on a cross just for no reason. Right. And, you know, it's... And, and the, the, the cross, again, it was a symbol of defeat. If you were on the cross, that meant you lost the war. Right. And Jesus yeah. is saying, uh, no, nope. I didn't actually. <laughs> um, so that's, I don't know, it's, it, it really is amazing when you get to thinking about it. And, and oh. again, and this is actually, I, and I love, the, I love it whenever we get to talk. I, I love going through the Old Testament stuff. <laughs> I really do. There's, it's so rich, mm-hmm. but I really, it, to me, it, it gets exciting whenever right. we get to see how it crosses over with, with Christ well, and, uh, and, and how it all 
or it all supports that. And so I, yeah, well, and then when when Gideon is renamed, because here's the other really fun little bit of this: when he, he's reborn, uh, to get a new name is to say your essence has so completely changed. Because remember, we talked about this several times. Mm-hmm. The name reflects the essence of the person, and so Gideon's name, the one who contends with Baal, mm-hmm. the, he's got a new, totally new identity, and not only does he have a new identity, his his new persona, his new identity is now he's a walking, talking reminder of the impotence of Baal. Mm-hmm. A- and nobody who comes in contact with him can forget mm-hmm. Baal lost to Yahweh. Yeah. And so you, when you put that in context with the resurrection. Well, and, and not, not even, <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry. I'm sorry, was there more to that thought? No, that's... <laughs> but not even that. I mean, I love this. It's Baal lost to a servant of Yahweh. Right. I mean, because... <laughs> <laughs> Baal lost to a person. Yeah. Not, we didn't even need to bring God into this necessarily. Right. Yeah. This wasn't, a, this wasn't an angel. This wasn't God himself. This, this was the low man on the totem pole. And yeah. so I, and I think that's. And Gideon goes into that resume. It's like, <laughs> I'm the least of my tribe. <laughs> I'm the last person in the least of the smallest tribe of the tiniest house in the section of the. You know, <laughs> and I don't even want to do it. <laughs> yeah, and on top of that, I don't feel like it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and God still wins. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's brilliant. So, I, I I love these ideas, and I I think this is where the Bible comes alive is it, when we start reading it this way. So, the 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 Midianites and the Amalekites. We're we're now in verse thirty two and thirty five. The Midianites and the Amalekites, and we've talked about the Amalekites before and who they are, uh, they, they gather up for the, their annual raid. Now, it's interesting that the Midianites have partnered with the Amalekites because okay. um, this is, the Amalekites are bad guys. We just don't want anything to do with them. They're part of the, the Rephaim, the, the oh, descendants. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So um, I think we talked about that in the Deborah episode mm-hmm. some. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in this, we find that Gideon's clothed in the Lord. Now, that's an important phrase that we're going to come back to, that, that he's clothed in the Lord. Okay. Because um, that is a weird phrase. It is a weird phrase, but oh my goodness, the, the writer of this account is so brilliant. I mean, just like as far as writing, just the literary tools he uses. Right. And so we're going to see that, but we got to get through the setup to, to see how he's doing this. So they're gathering up for their annual raid. God tells Gideon, hey, you know, you're going to take an army out. And they're, they're, this is where the, the fleece incident comes in. Mm-hmm. So this is 36 through 40. I think most of us know it. He lays it out one night and the, the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. Mm-hmm. The second night he reverses it and the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. And you know, I think for us, one of the things that comes from this is despite the fact he's clothed in the Lord or has the Holy Spirit, if you want to bring New Testament terminology to it, uh, he's still very human. Right. He still has his doubts. And I think sometimes we expect Christians who have had an experience with God not to have their doubts. And so I kind of found this encouraging Yeah. that you can have this kind of encounter with God and still have your doubts and God's still going to use you. Right. Uh, Plus we get a fun little phrase out of it. Right. Nice little shorthand. So. Some more little Christianese. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But Gideon, 
Gideon knows to at the same time he he knows what he's doing is wrong. He he actually uses the phrase you know, please don't be angry. Uh, it is what he I tell ask God, please don't be angry that, that I'm seeking this. Mm-hmm. And in Genesis 18:30 we have Abraham asking God not to be angry. Uh, as and it's so it's reconnecting mm-hmm. us with the Abraham story again. Uh the the difference is when in that situation with Abraham, this is when he's arguing with God for Sodom, you know, the 50 men, the 20 men, mm-hmm. and, and so on. God actually invited Abraham to have that conversation. And it, when we talked about that on um, one of our previous episodes, God's like, shouldn't I say something to my prophet? You know, isn't it right that he should know I, I'm, I'm betraying this? But that's kind of the idea. Yeah. Uh, God isn't inviting Gideon to this, to this conversation. Right. So, I mean, yeah, Gideon's kind of taking it on his own. But when he finally does just accept it and roll with it, and he sends that call out for the troops, 32,000 men respond. That's a lot. It, it tells you that he's somebody. Yeah. And it reaffirms everything we were saying about his father before. Mm-hmm. He, he, he has got some influence to pull 32,000 men. That, that's what, like the population of Muskogee? Uh, no, I think it's a little bit bigger than that. So, no, okay, something like that. I'll, but, I mean, that's irrelevant. It's, yeah. it's, it's the population of, of many towns. Right, right. So, um, now, it's still not a huge army when you consider... I also realize most people don't know how big Muskogee, Muskogee is. is. <laughs> right, true. So, sorry. Uh, I'm used to teaching in a college in Muskogee, so I like to use Muskogee as a, as a reference point. Um, but anyway, uh, when you can remember the, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they have 135,000 soldiers. So yeah. still not great odds. Uh, but God tells Gideon, send home anyone who's afraid, which I think... Man, you want to, to me, it's curious that when God says, you know, send home anyone who's afraid, 22,000 of these guys go, yep, that's me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that would, probably would have been me, to be honest. But I guess, I, I don't know, because I, I know a lot of guys who would never, ever admit they were afraid and they would just, you know, I'm gritting my teeth. I'm going through it. I'm I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> so. But for twenty two thousand, so now he's down basically a third, a third a of what over he a third. Had. Yeah, he's down to ten, down to ten thousand, and um, yeah, and the whole purpose of this obviously is to show that God's going to win the battle, not Gideon, right? And so then we have this really, this really weird incident with the guys drinking at the stream. Yeah, it, it's just so bizarre. I, I don't think. It's Did just, you find any good information? No, on it? I didn't. And not anything reliable. It, huh? Not anything. No, it's like God's like, what's the most ridiculous test I can come up with? <laughs> and, and this is what he decides. <laughs> and you know, it just shows us that our ways are not God's ways. Was, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, it's, yeah, it is. But it, it's funny to me because you said the most ridiculous test, and I'm like. For some reason, my mind went to like stupid human tricks from, <laughs> right. from Dave Letterman. Can and I'm you like, lick your elbow? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, there's just. Yeah. Okay, so, so for those of you who don't know what the test is, basically it takes them to the, the stream to drink. And some of them like kneel down and lap the water up like a dog. 
mm-hmm. and then some will lift the water to their faces and their with their hands cupped. And so the the ones who who lap the water like a dog, obviously they can't see what's going on around them. Mm-hmm. Where those with the cupped hands can can see what's going on. And so Gideon keeps ones with the cupped hands. Now the question is, the only thing I found, and this is just a question that was thrown out there, is God keeping the smart ones, the ones who make the best warriors, because they're still able to pay attention to their surroundings? Or is he keeping the ones who are the most afraid, who were too afraid to, to just surrender themselves to the experience of putting their face in water? Or, <laughs> or I mean, you're also looking at the, they're in a time of oppression. Mm-hmm. Are, you know... Is he keeping the ones who still uh, try to, who still think of themselves as God's children and still think of themselves as, as human and not animals? Oh, that's good. I mean, that, that's a thought yeah. that I had. I mean. Yeah, that's, that's actually, yeah. I like that. Again, I, just a question because <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the text doesn't actually spell that out. But yeah, yeah. no, that's a good question. Um, so, but what this boils down to is Gideon's getting ready to march into an army of a 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites with 300 men. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy ratio. <laughs> yeah, the, this, there's, there's no time in history where this has really worked out well. We even have a movie about a 300-man army, and they all get slaughtered. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean... <laughs> yeah, if you, if you wanted some perspective. But, uh, although, you know, I do, you know, I'm, I'm guessing also to... Some of the the numbers are probably symbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've talked a little bit about that how yes. that, how that works out with ancient math and whatnot. Um, but you know, and, and I do wonder sometimes if sometimes body counts are a little bit skewed because you realize they're you know a lot of times they're using swords. So you know if you find like right. half of a person over here, <laughs> find a torso here and legs over here, does that get counted twice sometimes or? I'm having this Lord of the Ring moment. It's three, four. <laughs> <laughs> it still counts as one. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and these are these are questions. I think unless you're there, you you probably aren't gonna you probably aren't gonna get to find a good answer. Right. <laughs> it's all gonna be speculation. But the <laughs> the fun is in the speculating. Uh, I, I do enjoy that because. It, that's where you begin to ask the questions that do make those connections between those Old and New Testament passages mm-hmm. and the different stories. So yeah, and 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 again, we, and we speculate a lot, but and, mm-hmm. and we we go on some crazy tangents. But I think I think at the end of the day, if you're winding up with God is sovereign, <laughs> right? God is God good. Is good. <laughs> uh, and and those things, Christ is King. You know, get, get, if you keep what? landing back there. I don't think you've stumbled on a completely wrong answer. Uh, yeah, and we're actually that ties into some more of Gideon's story and because that's that's we're gonna find that that's where Gideon fails okay and so we the importance of continuing to worship God through these things it is we don't have to have all the answers right we just need to keep looking for them and so yeah so God sends Gideon out against the uh, Midianites and we're in verses 9 through 15 um but before that, Gideon, he's still scared. He's mm-hmm. still having a problem. And it, there's, do, do you think maybe he was like going, you know, send anyone whom who's afraid. It's like, can I get on that? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's I me. In, am I exempted from that? Do I, I, how does this fill out the right paperwork? I don't know. 
oh, if I would have known you were going to pick the guys who drank like that, I would have been among them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, now you tell me. <laughs> right. Well, and, and what I love here in this story, and I, I think it kind of gets another one of those points that gets overlooked. I can't remember hearing this in Sunday school, but God actually sends Gideon into the Midian camp. And specifically to strengthen his hands, which means to give him courage. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, God knows Gideon's still afraid. And he, he, he kind of preemptively before Gideon can go, okay, God, I've got another fleece. You know, mm-hmm. we need, he, he says, I'm going to do what it takes to, to embolden him. And evidently Gideon, even though he's popular among the Israelites, he's still anonymous enough among the Midianites that he can slip into this camp mm-hmm. without being recognized. Um, and the, the description, yeah, because, because he hasn't done anything to provoke their army yet. Right. Right. He's, he's just basically ticked off his own people. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing we, he is, he's kind of flying under the radar. And when we, in this portion, when we talk about the Midian army, there's some, some key terms. They're like, the soldiers are like locust. The camels are without number. Mm-hmm. They're with like the sands of the sea. So, you know, seeing these things, and this is what I found to be very interesting. Seeing these things should have made him more afraid. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> But what he, what he hears is what makes him bold. Okay. And so now, you know, faith comes by hearing and okay. so yeah. you got a connection there. And, and what, what he hears is a Midianite soldier who is, he's talking about a dream. And in this dream, this barley cake uh, tumbles, uh, I love the word there, it tumbles into camp and smashes a tent and it causes the tent to go upside down and left lying flat. And Another soldier offers a dream, uh, the interpretation of the dream, and this is verse 14, and he says, this is the sword of Gideon. This is, Gideon's going to be the one who comes and conquers, and God has given our camp and our army into Gideon's hand. Now, this is such a weird dream, but what we got to remember is this is a people who were used to thinking abstractly. Mm-hmm. Language was not as developed as it is now. That's such a weird concept for us to to begin to wrap our minds around. Right. Hebrew is four to six thousand words, depending on who's counting and where they divide the map and mm-hmm. all of that. English is over a hundred thousand words. Easily it's growing every day. Yeah. So they understood the ability to think abstractly and to kind of glean as many meanings from a single phrase as possible. Yeah. So a barley cake, a barley cake was the offering that's made on the second day of Passover. Okay. And it's among the first fruits offering. Barley is harvested before wheat. And this, and this is, he's hearing this in the Midianite camp. Well, it's not, he's not given all of the connections of what barley cake would mean for Gideon, but he does know the barley cake dream. He heard that in the Midianite camp. Okay. So he heard the dream itself, and he heard that the interpretation is that the, the cake is Gideon. Okay. So Gideon would have known that this was a Passover offering, that this was a first fruits offering. Mm-hmm. He, he, these are things he would have filled in from his own experience. Gotcha. Okay. As a reader, it's reminding us what this battle is about. This battle is about 
bread. It's about crops. It's about feeding his people. Mm-hmm. And because the Midianites, they aren't just stealing from the people; they're stealing from God. Right. And so God's not going to let the the stand. And one of the things I found interesting uh, was the fact that we have this Midianite, an outsider, who's having a dream that conveys a truth from God. And when we talk about outsiders receiving truth from God, we typically do find it in this dream form. We have it with Pharaoh and Joseph. We have it with Abimelech and Abraham, Mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. So this is typically how God is communicating with people outside of the covenant community. And so I thought that was very interesting that, again, we find it here in Judges. Yeah. So, but what I thought was so, so great about this story, once again, seeing should have just terrified him. Yeah. But his faith was strengthened by what he heard. And it's interesting to me, too, that he'd been hearing from God and it wasn't God's voice that reassured him. It's actually the voice of the enemy. Hmm. And so this might foreshadow some problems with Gideon that he's more willing to listen to the voice of the enemy than God himself. Okay. But at the same time, what it does, it does reaffirm the idea that God is God over everyone in all the world and can speak to everyone. And so the idea of these territorial gods and God being above them is, that would be heartening to hear. So, and this is really the moment of transformation when we go from Gideon being that scared little guy in the wine press in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. to the mighty man of valor. Yeah. This is the moment where he, he changes and he steps into that role. Okay. So. Well, cool. I'm getting I signals. Think, <laughs> say, I think I think that's a good place to end it for this week. I'm just I'm still wrapping my mind around a lot of that. Yeah. Because there's there's a lot there, and I do I do. I mean, we we have a couple minutes we can <laughs> chat, but I just because I'm thinking about that because you're talking about God using the dream. The dream was to the enemy soldier, right? And so, yeah. I, 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 that, that, that's interesting because you do have this, you know, he's using symbols that Gideon would have understood. And I think you, I'm, I think I'm probably just repeating a lot of what you said, but he's using symbols that Gideon would have understood to be like, no, I'm, I'm already in the camp. Yeah. Is basically what he's yeah, saying. And, and he, he can speak to anyone. He, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to speak to just the Israelites. He can speak to a Midianite because he's that big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we go back to the idea of territorial gods again. That's, this is where God's power shines through for these people. The idea that God exceeds anything territory-wise, he's not associated with a single place or just a single people group. He can be greater. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes him worthy of worship. Every God that everybody else was familiar with was limited in power next Mm -hmm. to Yahweh. Well, and and I mean, and you kind of, if you want to take that even to kind of a modern, uh, kind of, I don't know, it's not necessarily application, but a modern view is we see God using these same symbols mm-hmm. to speak to the world mm-hmm. in movies and in literature. It's yes. all the same stuff. It's I mean, it's what we do on the commentarians, right? Is we look at how how God is speaking to people, even though they may, even though they may, they may not get the message. Mm-hmm. We're getting the message. Well, and, so, and I, I, and that's 
Well, and if you look at even the symbolism of bread, uh-huh. I mean, we go into the New Testament, what Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, you know, this is, bread is so central. And so it, it's something that is given by God and something that we also give back to God as part of the mm-hmm. sacrificial system. You begin to see that this life giving item, mm-hmm. it, it really is central in Judaism as far as what it means about God's presence. And so for for God to say in the stream that Gideon is a barley cake, that he he is this piece of bread, mm-hmm. uh, he he really is elevating Gideon as something that is life giving. Yeah. And so you know, as believers, that needs to be something we strive to be. Are we life giving? And mm-hmm. so I we have the bread of life within us and we we should be passing that forward. So hmm. well cool. I like that. Well well on that I think we should Go on ahead and let everyone know if they want to be part of the conversation. Uh, hit us up over at ravencreeksc.com or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ravencreeksc is where you can find us. Um, also, sorry, the, the screen flashed on the camera computer. I was a little worried for a moment. Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, join us there. Um, be part of the conversation. If you would like to... Uh, support us. There's a support link over at ravencreeksc.com. Feel free to click on that if you want to pass us a couple bucks to keep the show going. Buy a t-shirt of coffee mug. Buy a t-shirt, coffee mug, yeah, as featured not so prominently <laughs> here. Uh, but yes, uh, we look forward to hearing from you. If you uh, want to support us but don't want to actually hand us cash, we like that too. Um, be sure to share the episode, hit subscribe, rate us on iTunes, all that stuff helps us out. And um, we want to just say thank you for joining us and thanks for being encouraging and keeping us going. And we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.